Welcome to the Alt Asset Allocation Podcast. Exploring alternative investment opportunities available to the everyday investor. Here's your host, Ben Lakoff. Hello and welcome to the Alt Asset Allocation Podcast. Today's interview is with Martin North. Martin runs digitalfinanceanalytics.com as an absolute guru on all things Australian and New Zealand markets, especially the real estate market. We talk about Australia and New Zealand, the economy, investment mindset of the investors there, and the financial markets, government response to COVID. We talk quite a bit about these markets, but we actually get quite philosophical on where the world is now as a result of COVID and where we could potentially be going. Things like the Great Reset are being thrown around, but what other options do we actually have? The little changes and freedoms that we're giving up now, keep playing those out, teasing that out a little bit further, and it's pretty ugly where we end up going. Martin is a deep thinker, and I really, really enjoyed this conversation. So I get a lot of listeners on this podcast, but I really only have like 30 reviews on Apple Podcasts. If you're listening and you enjoy this, please, please, please take a second and drop a review if you're getting some sort of value from this. It really, really helps. If you're watching on YouTube, hit subscribe. I'd really appreciate it. Okay, once your review is done, I hope, please enjoy this perhaps a bit uncomfortable to think about conversation with Martin North. Enjoy. Martin, welcome to the show. Excited to have you on today. It's great to be with you, and uh, thanks very much for uh, sharing some time with me. It's 30 degrees here, 10 a.m. in Australia, just to show you that we're on the other side of the world, right? Yeah, you're in the future. So what what does Wednesday morning look like? It's still uh, Tuesday afternoon here. <laughs> you know, I, I was, I was really, it was really interesting, right? Because everybody was saying, oh, look, 2020 was a disastrous year. 2021 is going to be just so much better, right? And here we are, what, two weeks in? <laughs> no, no, no. It's the same recording. <laughs> well, I mean, the rest of the world doesn't just stop things that are happening because of a calendar date, right? I think this is the harsh reality. It's probably starting to hit now. This is being recorded January 12th. I think people are starting to realize you can't just leave behind everything that was happening in 2020 and it's a, it's a new year. So new fresh well, it's, start. It's, right? it's a nice sort of philosophical, you know, <laughs> if only, but the, the reality is that the economic fundamentals that we had last year are precisely the same as this year that we've still got all the issues to do with the virus and everything else and you know uh, therefore i think there was a lot of um hyping from the media about you know new year new start but actually new year same old same old back to the future it's very very true indeed but at least there are some things that are starting to look up, perhaps. That's, a few things you know, beginning to settle, perhaps, yeah. <laughs> so it's a silver lining with every storm cloud, I suppose, exactly. right? Exactly, <laughs> Well, this is, this is a little bit of a different interview, and we talked a bit before we started uh, recording, but like a lot of my listeners are based in the U.S. We're looking at the U.S. markets, U.S. investments, and you are an expert within Australia and New Zealand. So very different, other side of the world, different day. But the the content that you're producing, you really know what's going on. I think it'll be a really interesting conversation to know what's happening on the other side of the world and what's driving that economy happening there. And then what what can we learn from that market in relation to our own portfolios? We'll get into all things real estate and Australian economy, but let's let's start off a little background on you and what you do. Sure. Well, digital finance analytics is my core 
company. And what that is essentially is a set of analytics based on household, consumer, and uh, smaller enterprise business surveys, right? We've been running them since about 2002. And what we try to do is to get really granular into what's going on. So my, my frustration was a few years ago, I used to work in the big end of town, you know, big consulting firms and big banks. And there was a lot of high level statements being made about the way the economy was performing, what people were thinking, what businesses were doing. But it was also high level. And so I decided a few years ago to start carving out a much more granular view of what was going on. So I run continuous surveys. And that information then flows into what I call my core market model. And my core market model is effectively a simulation of the Australian economy. And so we're trying to put all of the information that's coming in from all the sources that are available and then look at it granularly. So, you know, it, it's very important to move away from high level statements about what's going on to a much more granular view. So it's a really granular analysis that then leads into some insights. And then over the last two or three years, I've started to feed those insights through my blog which is at digitalfinancealytics.com, but also my YouTube channels. And so I uh, run daily shows on YouTube uh, to, uh, called Walk the World. And there we discuss all of the things that I'm, I'm seeing. And uh, I run sort of weekly live shows and, and, and daily updates as well. So it's turned itself from being a purely analytical task to being a much more educative task, because it's clear to me having spoken to a bunch of uh, people through my surveys, is that the level of understanding is quite low, certainly here in Australia, and I think in New Zealand as well. People are being swept along by the, you know, the spruikers, be they property spruikers or gold spruikers or Bitcoin spruikers, particularly on the social media channels. So what I'm trying to do is to bring a semblance of order to say, look, here is what the data is actually saying at the moment, right? And then we move from there to say, well, in that's what the data is saying. Here are some things you might want to think about. But I don't make specific recommendations. I don't give financial advice. I'm not trying to sell anything. What I am trying to do is just lay, you know, lay some ghosts <clears throat> and lift the level of awareness so that people can make better decisions for their own financial features. Nice. And uh, you used a term that I've never heard before, spruikers. I imagine what it means, but <laughs> that, what, what that's does that an mean? Australian term, which basically says there are people who are saying, you know, property markets never fail, right? They, you know, that there, there's, there's a school of thought that says property prices in Australia double every seven years, right? And it's amazing how often that gets trotted out, right? And there are websites and you know, other social media sites and even some of the mainstream, you know, newspapers who are basically, basically also own real estate portals, all spruiking, in other words, encouraging people to go and buy property and the government's doing the same. We'll, we'll come on to that, right? So that's what spruiking is about. And, you know, if you, if you go onto YouTube and listen to, you know, there are people there saying, no, no, the future's gold, right? You should be holding gold because basically the US dollar is going to collapse and, you know, you, therefore a hyperinflation, therefore you need gold, right? And, and so, but when you actually look at them, they actually own gold companies and they sell gold to people and they make money from selling gold. So how objective is that advice, right? Same on Bitcoin, right? There are people sort of talking about Bitcoin and how Bitcoin is the future. And of course, it went very high. It's come back a bit now. All of these things are because I know people are very passionate about a particular dimension, right? But it can easily fall over into, frankly, a commercial model, which means that you can't really take what they say as being clean and clear, right? 
That's what I mean by spruiking. So essentially it's trying to persuade people to do something and they'll put information up and they'll make an argument, but they don't necessarily declare all of their interests. And that I think is a problem. Absolutely. That's exactly what I figured it was, but I'll use that term now. That's great. (laughs) Well, it's an Australian term, but I think it deserves to go around the world, right? (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. It's prevalent in a number of things, right? It's talking your book. It's uh, financial advisors that make money from churning your accounts. It's like all of these things. It's misaligned incentives and and lack of disclosures. And and it's worth saying, I think my training actually is I'm a philosopher by training. So I I went to Oxford and uh, spent some time doing philosophy. So I always want to ask the next question, right, which is what is behind the statement that is being made? What's the assumption that's being made behind the statement? Right. And then you start peeling back the onion and you realize that there's a bunch of other things going on below the waterline that you never dreamt was actually going on, right? And that's what I'm trying to get to. So I'm trying to lift the, 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 the level of awareness and understanding simply by asking that next question, but, you know, but why are they saying that? You know, what is, what is it that's driving that particular perspective? And that takes you into some very interesting areas. And by the way, you can trip over quite often because people say, my worldview is very different, so I don't agree with you, but that, that's okay. Let's understand that everybody carries around their worldview, their set of assumptions about the way things are, right? Sometimes it's good to just question those rather than just carry them around as a set of implicit assumptions that you never actually get exposed. And that's partly what I try to do on my channel. Awesome. Yeah. Well, I mean, we have to have these lenses and these, these mental models to understand that the torrent of information that's constantly coming, you have to have a way to kind of put it, put them nicely in their places. You just don't lose your mind every day. Right. Well, you know, and the fact is everybody has one, you know, it's, it's a matter of survival. You need, a mental model, you know, evolution gives us that to be able to survive. Because if you had to stop and think about every decision and everything that was going on all the time, you wouldn't move, right? But there's a so there's a natural set of filters that go on, and you know, you know, you, you sort of say, oh, that's a person, so I might take more interest. You know, you ignore the rest of the environment you're in. But it's the same with everything else, right? You have to actually understand that there is a set of assumptions that actually are wired into the way that you think about things, right? And it's fine and that's necessary because otherwise you wouldn't move but sometimes it's really important to question the validity of those assumptions say well what if i'm wrong what if that particular assumption that i'm making is actually incorrect so you know go back to the the gold bitcoin conversation right you know if it is true that the us dollar is likely to degrade in terms of its role as the you know the support to currency around the world and if it's true that inflation is going to come raging through, then sure, gold might well be an answer. The question is, those two assumptions are really big assumptions, and very often they're wired into just the way that people think. So they don't question. Absolutely. And even asking what assumptions am I even making? Because they're so baked into the way that you perceive the world and the way that you think through things (laughs) that you've, you've gone so far that you don't even realize that these are, these are, really large assumptions that are (laughs) impacting a number of follow-on decisions. Yeah. And and what's interesting is sometimes, you know, you'll have a discussion with somebody, right? And you realize that you're never going to agree with that um, other party because their basic assumptions are different to yours, 
right? And so even whilst you might think you might be having a discussion here at the middle, right, the, the, the worldviews are so different that effectively you will never come to uh, a common understanding. And that, that really is both frightening, but also quite interesting, right? Because what it says is it's really important to understand some of the bigger picture stuff. Fantastic. And, and I, I didn't want to go too far down that tangent, but it's so, it's, it, I, you said you didn't want to give investment advice, but my God, what good broad investment advice is that to question your assumptions and, and think through like the second, second order effects of these assumptions yep. and how they impact your investment portfolio. So I, and, I am and, glad and, we went And there. very important, question the assumptions of those who are actually giving advice to you, right? What's driving them? What's their motivation, right? What are they really trying to achieve, right? All about that incentives. That is probably the most critical question of all. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Well, this is the first time I've gone into a more philosophical right off the bat, but I, I do appreciate it. That's for sure. I, I love these discussions. This is also the first episode that I've done with somebody that's very New Zealand, well, Australia, New Zealand specific. And I love the data-driven approach that you take. Let's back up a bit. And I mean, this is kind of the benefit is you're, you're analyzing all of this data and then presenting it via your blog and YouTube channel in a more palatable way. Let's just start off a little bit more macro view. What's happening in Australia? What's happening in the Australian real estate market? And then go from there. Okay. Yeah. So it's been a pretty interesting ride over the last two or three years. If you go back pre-COVID, so, you know, January last year, the Australian economy was slowing. Unemployment rate was rising a little. House prices were wobbling. They'd, they'd been quite strong from, let's say, 2000 onwards. We had a very slight wobble through the global financial crisis, but hardly any falls, nothing like you had in the US or indeed in the UK. So we've had very strong home price growth, and we were basically watching it pretty stable with slight moves up, right? And the government pretty much declared that they would be out of debt. So they said, right, we've actually achieved our objective of repaying the government debt, and therefore we are now going to be in the black, and therefore we're going to keep our spending under control, and that will lay a nice foundation for the next you know, three to five years. So that was the, <laughs> that was the story, December, January. <laughs> and then something happened, right, which, of course, was the virus. And so we had wave one. We had significant lockdowns here in Australia. It was actually remarkably quick. So the borders were closed, which stopped people coming in. The state borders were also locked down as well in some places, so people couldn't move. And, and you know, we, we were really pretty firmly locked down. New Zealand did the same. In fact, New Zealand was earlier than Australia. So there was a very significant freezing of activity. As a result of that, the government then announced very considerable support. So there was a scheme that allowed people to get money from their employee from from their employers so money went from the government to the businesses and the businesses then passed it on to people who were so to keep them employed as it were they also lifted the level of support for people who were unemployed because unemployment started to rise and there was a few cycles of this as the consequences of both the global and local situation came through. And about April or May, a number of the major banks came out and said, oh, we think price hot property prices will fall about 30% over the next uh, two or three years based on nobody's buying. None of the international buyers that were there and supporting the market previously are buying. You know, unemployment's going to be a lot higher. They were talking of 
maybe 10%, 11% unemployment, we'd been at about five and a half percent. So it was a situation where we had a major switch. Now we have a conservative government here, Liberal Nationals, and they've tended to want to keep government spending quite limited. Although actually, if you look at it under the covers, they've actually been growing government debt quite firmly, but that's another story. But philosophically, they had to turn a completely on, the, on their tail and basically said, right, we're going to throw a lot of liquidity into the system. So they did tax breaks. They did these liquidity injections into businesses and also through unemployment. And the Reserve Bank, who is our central bank here, cut the interest rates. And we went from a reasonably uh, low rate you know, I think at one point they said, well, we'll never go below 2.5% or <laughs> then 1.5%. And they cut the rates and they've cut them now to 0.1%, the last cut a couple of months ago, right? So they were therefore doing that to try and control the yield curve. And it's the same strategy as the Fed and the other central banks around the world. They upped the ante in terms of their liquidity injections. They've announced they're going to do quantitative easing. And uh, the other interesting factor there is that they have started to lend very cheap money to the banks to try and get the banks to lend more, right? So that's the sort of the journey that we've been on. The first lockdowns eased a couple of months later, and we got close to um, suppression or elimination of the virus in Australia. And so we started to see the first signs of some return to more normal activity within the country, still international borders shut. So no students, international students being a very large economic driver for what was going on in Australia, no international tourists, which was another big driver for the economy. So all of those things internationally were still frozen, but the local economy then started to recover a little. And then we had another breakout in Victoria. So Victoria is one of our main states. And so they went into another deep lockdown for another probably a couple of months in total. And that took us through the second half of, of, of the year into September, October, started to come out of that. And then since then, we've had a number of smaller spot fires, if you like, in terms of the virus, which means local closures, local lockdowns, more. So, so we've got this stop, start, stop, start, stop, stop, start thing going on, right? Now, the total infection rate is still very low relative to where it is in the US or, or Europe, but the economic consequences are very serious. So we've now got a government, remember I said at the beginning, they were celebrating that they were in no debt. They're now expecting to have at least 1.1 trillion Aussie of government debt over the next few years because of all this stuff that they're putting in to the economy to try and support it. So we've got a government that's turned from don't want to lend too much into the economy to oh, just throw it, let's throw everything in. Let's just, just, let's just throw it in. And of course, rates are very low, so they can say, well, the cost of that debt's quite low. The Reserve Bank has taken rates really, really. They have also encouraged the banks to lend more, as I said, but also the government then said, well, we need to encourage people to go buy houses. So there were schemes, both at a state and a federal level, to try and encourage people to go buy new properties. And so rather than seeing a fall of 30% in properties, right, we started now to see properties beginning to rise again. And we started to see the property market in the middle of all of this chaos in the middle of all the risk of defaults and all those things that are going on more broadly, properties are actually going up in a number of areas. It is remarkable, right? And 
in New Zealand, who actually were at this earlier, property prices have gone higher than they've ever done in the last 12 months. It is crazy, crazy, crazy. But the problem is, and this is where I sort of come to the yes, but, right? Whilst you can support the property sector and whilst the argument is, well, there's a million people who are actually working in construction in Australia, so we need to make sure that the construction sector continues to employ people. It's all about trying to support this wonderful Ponzi scheme that we've had in Australia for years and years and years. Property prices relative to income are some of the highest in the world. The debt that Australians have is some of the highest in the world relative to their, to their incomes. And give you an example, typical debt to income ratio today, if you go get a loan, is five, six times income, right, which is extremely high. So we've got this crazy situation where the government strategy for solving the issues with regard to the virus has been pump the property market. And so now the expectation is that property prices could well rise by five, ten. 15% over the next two or three years. So we, we've had this really big ro roller coaster. And the problem is that what we're seeing actually is a what I call a bifurcation of the economy. So we've got some parts of the economy, it's a, think of it as a K, right? So one leg of the K is doing quite well. So where you've got government support and government incentives, doing quite well. But you've got this other group and, you know, if you think about the total household count in Australia, there's probably 10 million households in Australia, but about 3 million are in this group who still have higher unemployment, have high levels of debt, are unable to maintain their mortgage repayments and rental payments. And so you've got this bifurcation. So essentially what's happening is that the disconnect between the haves and the have-nots, you know, those with savings and those with, for example, investments are doing quite well. Those without are not. So what's happening below the waterline is high government debt, a sort of pulling apart of the, the, the fabric of the society between those with the haves and those who have not. It's looking more and more like where perhaps the US was a decade or two ago, right? And Australia traditionally has been quite egalitarian, but it's falling apart. So that's sort of in a nutshell <laughs> where we are. And New Zealand is writ larger still because both Australia and New Zealand are very reliant on tourism. They're reliant on international students. Well, both of those are turned off. They are also, of course, reliant on some commodity exports. And the other factor to bear in mind and the thing that's really saved Australia but also has created another bigger crisis is that the bulk of the Australian economy, internationally speaking, is digging stuff out the ground and sending it overseas, mostly to China, mostly iron ore. The iron ore price today is at what, 175 US, way higher than anybody expected. And so that has saved the Australian economy and it will continue to save it for time. The question is, how long will that go on for? Because all this money that I mentioned earlier on has just been to support the property sector in short term. There's no long-term strategic plan for developing our economy into new areas and you know creating new innovation and those things it's just uh, what sometimes call houses and holes right that's what the australian economy is <laughs> houses because that's what people essentially uh, you know, <laughs> are putting all their money in and holes <laughs> as we dig stuff from out the ground and ship it overseas so this economy is very narrowly based if you look at it on some of the international metrics i think we're the fourth 
most concentrated, sorry, the 40th most concentrated. So no, we're right down the list with some African countries, very little diversification, very small tech sector, very limited capacity to create innovation and new businesses. And my surveys of SMEs are saying, oh, well, you know, we're not sure what we're going to do because the other thing I will say quickly is that they turned off director responsibility for trading insolvent and they turned off the need to actually close businesses if they were insolvent well that's now turned back on again end of the year so i'm expecting small businesses who really aren't getting the support they need to start turning over so we're in this sort of amazing i call it alice in wonderland world where the property sector is booming right and by the way the stock markets around the world are booming and everything else is looking pretty shaky yeah it's uh, well, the, the markets have a, a way of making the, the logical thinking mind look silly, right? And this is just a whole new meaning to uh, kick the can. It's like boot the can as far down the road as you can and then hope that, you know, whenever you get up to it again, you can kick. I was actually, I was living in Bali in March and I had a, a visa run uh, set to go to Australia. So I'm very mm. aware of the first initial strict lockdown because I could have, I, I was real close, I think two days from being uh, locked down in Australia, which would have been, mm. I'd probably still be there. It's interesting to think through this. And I mean, th- th- there's a lot there to unpack, but the way that I kind of want to push this and thank you, I thought that was an amazing recap and you have a fantastic memory of all the events and things that are moving on this. You can tell you, you talk about this quite often on your YouTube channel, which I'll link to in the show notes. I think that my key takeaway there, well, there's a number, but the, the one I want to go through is the government has been extremely accommodative. There's QE, lending, supporting low rates, driving them down even lower, tons of government support. I'd be curious on your thoughts of how much different this looks than the way that the US or other economies are fighting this pandemic and where it's perhaps better or worse in the way that they're attacking it. Okay, so I think there's two levels. The first level is on, on at the health end of the spectrum. I think we've been quite fortunate. Being a big island, of course, it's a little easier to insulate ourselves. And we did put border restrictions in place quite early on. So international travel is banned. So you, unless you've got a particular reason to go overseas, you can't. So, it, you know, and, and so that, that's the interesting trade-off between civil liberties and, and trying to get the virus under control. And I think what was interesting in Australia, Australians tend not to be particularly compliant generally, but actually most Australians understood this was important and, and sort of accepted it. So, so we've got a string of, you know, barriers around the borders, right? And that's the first thing. And I think, you know, airlines in Australia were saying, well, we think it's unlikely that we're going to see international arrivals really ramping up. For at least a year or two they've started to change their tune a bit more recently but they may just be a bit optimistic so so i think that was the first thing so sealing the border and accepting the uh, removal of civil liberties that that actually represented was the, was the first point the second point was that there the mistakes that they made in victoria and indeed in new south wales was not being completely strict on those quarantine regimes. So effectively, the breakout in Victoria was actually because people who were in quarantine and being looked after in quarantine transferred the virus into the community. So they are getting stricter and stricter. So for example, they're now saying that air crew when they fly and need to be to be tested and people will need to be tested before they got on an airplane if they're coming to Australia, right? So this, this is a remarkable 
but probably quite necessary. That's the first thing. Second thing is they've had very good track and trace, particularly in New South Wales. So as soon as a virus outbreak appears, and there are still mystery cases that pop up from nowhere, people don't quite understand where they come from. So, but then they go into massive track and trace and then give you a whole long list of places. If you were in that particular place in that particular time, then you need to isolate, get tested. So for 14 days, you're locked down not everybody's locked down right and we had a, a recent outbreak in what's called the northern beaches which is north of sydney and they ring fenced the whole area and said nobody in the northern beaches can go beyond the northern so that's the sort of strength or <laughs> disruption depending on how you look at it that actually Terrifying. dealt with the virus <laughs> yeah. so you know is that the sort of society you want no not really but the question is it has worked in terms of we don't have the same spread of the virus that you do in Europe or the US. It's interesting, New Zealand actually went even further and they did a very severe lockdown initially. They had a couple of breakouts beyond that around quarantine, but they've recently declared in New Zealand virus-free within the country, right? So they've still got the, the ring around the border. So it's remarkable that you can create effectively this eco space where effectively the virus is much more under control. So in theory, the local economy should be able to motor up a little bit more. But then you get this sort of, I don't know, you, you know what I mean by a whack-a-mole, but a whack-a-mole was a game where you have a head knock up and you hit the head and pop up with a hammer over there. Right? That's what it's like, right? So you keep playing whack-a-mole. And I think we're going to go on playing whack-a-mole. The, the concern I have is that people haven't twigged yet that whilst you might get the virus controlled locally, because of so much of our economy is linked to the international community, right? For as long as the virus is raging in the US or Europe or, 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 or Asia, the economy is not going to be normal. Can't be normal, right? So that's the sort of the, the first angle. The second angle then is from a financial perspective. We were late to taking interest rates down. We were sort of behind the Fed in terms of their quantitative easing programs. And in fact, in Australia, our reserve bank said, no, we won't need to cut rates anything like as much. <laughs> well, they are now, they have. So they were late to the party. They followed the same playbook as the Fed, I think. They've done pretty much the same sorts of things, which is yield curve control. And that's, you know, with the, with the bond issuance and all of those things. And I think the problem I've got is we've now got precisely the same problem as the Fed and other central banks, that we've got ourselves into this cul-de-sac of ever lower rates. But I can't see anybody talking about how you get out of it, right? Other than doing more quantitative easing. And I'd also have the, have the view, and you know, other people might disagree, that the quantitative easing program started after the global financial crisis. And it never solved that initial problem. So we've actually got a continuance, a continuation, and just going ever writ larger. So how, how much debt is too much debt? Well, <laughs> more than you might think. And so you've got this artificiality to both the US economy and the Australian economy. It's not really capitalism anymore, right? Because businesses are being supported and so they're, stop, they're stopped from failing. The True value of, of money is all over the place. And if you look at a lot of corporates, we've got a lot of zombie corporates around there who are able to get really, really cheap debt and just keep um, buying back shares and things like that. And in Australia, interesting that we had this um, government support, as I mentioned, two individuals via their jobs, a thing called JobKeeper. And interestingly, a lot of large firms actually reported excess profits this year because they got all this money from the government and uh, that meant that they were actually able to, you know, 
pay su supreme high, higher dividends to shareholders and to pay bonuses to the execs. So what's happened is a lot of the, the money that was created flowed into the big end of town. Now, I would argue that that's exactly what's happening in the, the US as well, that what a you've got absolutely. is a support mechanism that's supporting the financial markets. It's supporting the big end of town. Consumers and small businesses, well, they might get a few breadcrumbs, but, but, but not. And it's really a complete distortion of, of capitalism. You know, the idea is that capital goes to those areas where you can get greatest returns. Well, that's gone. I mean, we, we're, not, we're not in that situation. We're in a controlled economic environment where effectively central bankers think they're so clever that they can pull these levers and just throw more liquidity in. And we're breaking more and more of the economic reality. And so I look at the Eurozone, I look at Japan, who've been at this longest, right? And I think we're going to see the Japanization of Australia. In other words, no real inflation, more like deflation. The central bank holding more and more assets and buying more and more bits of the economy. I think the central bank has something in, in Japan has something like 40% of the Japanese economy now. Right? Or higher. I mean, I've, it's, it's just crazy, right? <laughs> it is. And they bought stocks shares you know every pretty much everything right and rates in japan are negative right and so there's a big debate about well ne negative interest rates and you know the reserve bank here says, no, no no we're not going to go into negative interest rates to which i reply yet yeah i'm pretty sure negative negative rates will come and um that's because this is a one-way street i can't see a way back unless and this takes us into a, another very broad discussion, unless you have some fundamental reset or restructure of the economic fundamentals. And that's where some of the World Economic Forum stuff, you know, which we can go into if you want, is scary. But that's why some people are now saying there has to be a reset. Yeah, the Old Testament had a debt jubilee every 50 years. This is the path I go down, right? I, I, I look at no. these things. It's it's widening the wealth inequality gap. Yep. It's it's. Every scenario I kind of go through, we'll just keep pumping this debt bubble until until you can't. And then basically it ends with pitchforks and torches and some sort of uh, reset. And it's it's crazy to hear that the exact same thing is happening in in Australia, which, yeah, it's not the biggest economy in the world. But like, you know, I, I look at the U.S. and it's like, oh, man, this is a disaster. It's the death of fiat money. Everybody else is in the same boat, which is even more terrifying, right? Yeah, this, this, is a, this is a planetary thing, I would say. I would say that most economies around the world, and even if you look at Japan, uh, sorry, if you look at Japan, big example into the future, but even China, you know, the, the, the superficial numbers in China may not be bad, but they're buying back bonds and they're actually supporting their banking system and they're reducing their capital structures to support the Chinese economy, right? So there are still some of the same things going on over there too. So pretty much wherever you look amongst more advanced economies, you've got the same old, same old. It's true. Talk to me a bit about the World Economic Forum and what they're talking about and why that's something <laughs> that's so terrifying for you. Or maybe it's well, not terrifying. Um, it's, this, it's this new world that's going to well, solve everything, right? <laughs> it, it, yeah. Well, look, I mean, I, I suppose it depends on what you, what you think of a reset might look like, right? And, and you know, and th th there's a clear set of arguments that, that I would say, what's happened over the last 20 odd years, economically speaking, has been a disaster for the majority of people around the world. Because what you've got is you've got a concentration of wealth in an ever smaller group <clears throat> who've done very well. But if you look at the, the wealth 
um, distribution. It means that those with assets, those in the financial markets who are being supported by the central banks are doing really, really well. No wonder stock markets are relatively high at the moment, but everybody else not so much, right? So, so there is a fundamental problem with the way that the system is working. That system, which is controlled by central banks and central bankers, and you know whether you put it down to groupthink, because all the central bankers get together and talk to each other under the BIS, or whether you think there's something more sinister. I personally think it's groupthink. I think it's just the, it's just the way that they think because central bankers have a particular way of thinking. They are actually partly to blame for this. And the worry I've got there is that central bankers are not accountable to anybody, if you look carefully, right? Because they are carefully separated from governments. <clears throat> and I don't know what it's like in the US, but you know the central bank guys go and sit in front of parliament and the parliament asks them a few gentle questions. We call them Dorothy Dixon type questions in Australia. In other words, ones that really are not particularly hard to, to, to answer. They never ask the really hard questions, right? So the central bankers get away with murder, right? So, so that's been what's, what's happened, right? So, so there is, a need, <clears throat> I think, a need to think differently about it. Now, the question is, is what the World Economic Forum is saying then more than that, and is it sinister? And it depends on how you go. So there was an article published a few years ago. It was actually an article written by a Scandinavian politician who basically talked about, you won't own anything. You won't need to own anything because basically it'll be on demand, right? And, and so, and they talked about using AI to be able to, you know, service people's needs, et cetera, et cetera. And it was a sort of a utopian view. And it's interesting that when that was first, first published, it was sort of trumpeted by the World Economic Forum. They, since, have you noticed, they've changed the title of it and they've sort of said, well, this is just one scenario, one example, right? But what they were doing there was, was highlighting how the combination of digitalization, the combination of, you know, the, the, the sort of di the, the digital change. So, for example, you don't need to have, own a kitchen. You can just have a, fry, a frying pan delivered when you want to use it, sort of, it was, was the sort of the example. Now, you could argue that that's just sort of a you know a, a nutty sort of way to sort of think about a future, right? But I worry that the combination of digitalization, the combination of the concentration of debt and the concentration of wealth and all those things could lead us to a situation where the likes of the World Economic Forum and, and their connections to um, Davos, and by the way, I always get Davos and Davros muddle up. I don't know whether you know Davros, but if you follow Doctor Who and the Daleks, right? Davros was the guy who actually created the no, Daleks. I well, I okay, okay. So so the the, the, the the Davros was the founder of the the creator of the Daleks, right? Well and Davos is the you know the, the this sort of group of very powerful rich people who get together and talk about the future, right? Uh, <laughs> I wonder whether there's a coincidence. I'm not sure whether there is, but you know, I think it's quite interesting. So so I, I'm worried that these powerful people, these rich people, these affluent people are going to be trying to dictate a future which effectively is sort of coming top down, you know, come down through central banks, come down through, and, and we won't have a chance to really debate it locally, right? So I'm very worried about that. Now, I also think that if you bring into the mix then, you know, and Prince Charles is a good example of, of somebody who's saying we've got to think about the environment and, you know, eco as well, because we are on this one sphere right this one arc we're part of it it's not like it's us versus the earth the earth is us 
So if we actually take the, you know, the earth into an area where effectively it becomes uninhabitable, then we, we, we kill ourselves. So we should be taking that seriously too. So there are clearly some big questions to be asked about how does economics work in the future? How do economies work in the future? You know, what's the right degree of, of personal freedom, local freedom and international coordination of some of these big questions? But the worry that I've got is that people are jumping to a particular solution where they use technology and they use central planning. And this feels more and more like you know, communism and control than anything else. And that worries me. And yet it seems to me that maybe because of the virus and, and maybe because everything else, that people just seem to be sort of sleepwalking into this future of digitalization, digital money, right? For example, so what happens if suddenly, like in areas of China, where they're using digital money, right? And they're actually giving out digital money but then, of course, digital money means you can associate it with a social score. You can, can be controlled. It can be turned on. It can be turned off. Turned You've off lost completely. Another freedom, it right? can be blocked yeah. and censored for certain ways. It's Yeah, correct. And I'll give you another, another local example. Last year in Australia, we had an attempt by the government to ban cash transactions above $10,000 between businesses and individuals, right? And it was brought in as an initiative to, you know, deal with anti-money laundering Eris, and those yeah, sorts of things. For sure, always. <laughs> but, but, the, but the truth, the truth was that this was essentially a removal of a civil liberty that we have today to be able to settle in cash if we want to. Now, we actually launched a, resi a resistance movement partly through this the, for the DFA channel, right? And we actually got three and a half thousand submissions to Parliament which was probably as many as they've ever received on any issue ever, right? And then through a series of hearings, it finally got killed. So we have no cash ban in Australia. And that's an example of democracy in action, right? Now, that took a lot of time and effort, a lot of people on a lot of YouTube channels, because the, the formal government processes just didn't work, right? Now, that is what I'm on about in terms of there are things that if we're not careful are just happening to us and little bit by little bit by little bit we're giving up freedoms we're giving more and more accountability or responsibility to some you know autonomous authority be it you know local or, or global that is what's going to happen unless we stand up for it unless we actually say no 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 freedoms have been hard won over generations right and we're not just going to sort of turn around and say, oh, that's fine. Feel free. Just, you know, and that's why I get really twitchy with these lockdowns that we had in Australia with the virus. Right. Like I said, civil liberties were actually crucified in the process. Right. Now we roll over. But I wonder how many of those we rolled back. Uh, so we are, I think, at a very precarious time in our evolution. Right. Because the, on so many fronts, we seem to be hitting the boundaries between inequality, you know, wealth versus those who really don't have enough to get by, the digitalization of everything and the control that that, that leads to. And I also am very concerned about the broader environmental and, and social issues that they create too. So, so there are huge, huge big picture issues here, right? And my worry is that what we end up doing is dealing with the spot fires rather than actually the strategic picture. And I tell you, I said I was a philosopher, right? Yes. Cool. I want to know what our future is going to be. And, and I want to us to have a debate about what that future should look like and what controls we are prepared to accept and what controls we aren't prepared to accept and how much government 
you know, debt and spending is appropriate rather than it just being dictated to, which is what's happening at the moment. Well, yeah, the frog in boiling water analogy is completely incorrect, but that's the way yep. that I think about it. It's like these little things. And I, I actually thought they'd use the coronavirus as a, as a opportunity to ban cash. It's like this cash is so dirty. It transmits the virus. We're going to push this uh, digital only version, mm-hmm. you know, and it's kind of a, it's, it, it, it's, it's, happened, a, it's happened in areas in Australia. There are there are some yeah, um, retailers who right? are not it's taking cash. Push yeah. it further and further, and it's an easier way to push uh, UBI and stimulus and, and and fiscal policy. It'll be so much more efficient. Mm. And you know, it's like uh, dangling the carrot, and you, you're just you're giving up all of your financial privacy, and and eventually even even more privacy, because the ability for some government to shut you off completely when it's completely mm. digital that gets that gets real big brothery and and not very fun. Well, what's interesting here is that we've had a removal of press freedom and personal freedoms over the last 20 years in Australia, right? Now, you know, when I first came to Australia, I felt that Australia was a relatively free and open society, but little bit by little bit by little bit, thanks to risks of terrorism, you know, and all of those things and and bad things that happen, it's little bit by little bit, things are being eroded, right? And I I don't think there's a complete blueprint from soup to nuts. Some people have argued that there is. I don't think there is. I think this is just incrementalism, but the trajectory of that incrementalism is what concerns me, right? Because every time we lose a bit of freedom, right, it's going to be really hard to pull it back. And every time we've lost a bit more, the analogy I sometimes use is it's like the sea coming in and eroding the cliffs, right? Little bit by little bit by little bit, the cliffs get eroded and you come back 10 years later and oh, I've lost 12 meters of land. Well, that's how I feel about what's going on at the moment. A hundred percent. It's like a glacier melting, right? I mean, every year you, you look at it and it looks the same, but you look at a picture from 50 years ago and it was a lot bigger then. And it's, it's mm. very drastic. All of this stuff is pretty dire. I mean, the, 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 the World Economic Forum, go to weforum.org slash great reset. People, people are talking about this. It's almost impossible. You can pick up the little breadcrumbs, but it's almost impossible to know the entire picture and what it will look like. There are things like MMT that are popping up. Like where, what are you kind of thinking through the way of some global bank or and global centralized government? Like uh, walk me through how you're thinking through this. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I, there are people who believe that there is a blueprint, a globalized blueprint that's sort of there somewhere and is being rather. My own view is I think that's relatively unlikely, simply because I just don't see how that necessarily formally would happen. But informally, right, little bit by little bit, as people get together and talk, and as you know, central bankers get together and talk, and governments get together through the G20 or whatever, you can see how the components could almost by accident end up in that direction right and frankly with totalitarian you know people in power you know look at what trump was doing still quite recently other other places to even here in australia we've got a more dictatorial spirit coming through at the moment in in, in our leaders than previously right there's much less feeling for consensus much less taking us with what's going on it's more sort of do this do that jump here jump there so there is a tendency to sort of to follow this through. So I, I, I'm of the view that there is um, certainly a risk of some of these things falling the wrong way 
and essentially the combination of the digitalization that I've mentioned, the globalization that I've mentioned, could lead to things like a currency that, you know, what, what after, what's after the dollar, right? And Mark Carney, uh, a couple of years ago, used to be the, the guy at the Bank of England. He actually made a speech at Jackson Hole saying, well, the next, you know, currency after the, the US currency might not be yuan, it might be a digital currency, right? Now, if that's the case, it could be a global thing, right? And if it starts getting global, then you've lost another element within the way that economies actually work and the autonomy locally. So, so there is a risk, there is a risk that some of this globalization stuff and some of this top-down stuff, and I have to keep saying, well, who is the World Economic Forum and the United Nations and some of these other large organizations, who are they accountable to? Who's actually, who's actually keeping them in check and under control? Because it seems to me it's coming the other way around, that they're actually publishing these missives and saying, well, jump here, do that. You know, Bank for International Settlements has imposed capital adequacy rules on banks around the world such that lending to small businesses is more capital intense than lending for mortgages. No wonder then that banks prefer to make mortgages. I mean, there are consequences for this top-down governance control. And I just worry that we've lost the plot. I completely agree. All of these factors and these big moving pieces, how, how does one think through in the investment decisions you're making now? Some of these things, it's like, okay, well, I buy a bunker and a bunch of gun and non-perishables, right? Like, because that's a scenario, but like, you know, I don't want to go down too dystopian. Yes, this is a bit Orwellian and big brothery, but like, how do you think through investment decisions taken now with these facts in play? So I think there's a few, there's a few observations and I don't give investment advice particularly, but you know, the fact is you need diversity in any investment strategy, right? And ever more than ever, I, I am really worried when people tell me, well, I've decided to put all of my savings into Bitcoin, right? It's gone up so much, I can't lose. Well, maybe. What happens if you're wrong, right? So I do think there's a really important place for diversification. I also think that the chances are that we're going to see the financial markets have a significant hiccup ahead. I don't know when that's going to be. I don't know whether it's going to be the next week, the next month, the next year. My feeling is, with all the central bank support, it's probably going to be months or maybe years away, but it could be wrong, right? So at some point, those... Because the valuations are totally stretched. If you think of any stock at the moment in the market and look at future earnings growth, which is how you normally would value stocks, they're about what forty percent overvalued on average, and there are some even more. You know, tech stocks even might look at Tesla, for example. So, so you've got to think that the, the the logic about you know the search for value is actually quite different from where it was. The other point to make there is that, of course, it's the tech sector that's done really, really well over the last few months, particularly with the virus. And the question is, is that going to continue? Well, recent wobbles suggest maybe not, maybe, maybe not. There are some sectors that are out of favour at the moment. Well, maybe they'll come back. But um, then how quickly will the airline industry, for example, or tourism industry come back? Well, depends on the <laughs> depends on the virus. So there are significant risk the other point to make is with savings rates so low i mean i don't know what term deposit rates are in the u.s but here you get almost nothing now if you put money in the bank and so people are being forced 
out from holding money in secure bank environments, even as a risk of bail-in, which uh, you know is maybe low, maybe high, but they're being forced out into the market. And in fact, the Reserve Bank uh, here keeps saying, well, people are going to have to take market risk. So they're being forced to play that game. And I think I'm concerned by that as well. So diversification is pretty important. I also think that you've got to be really careful, going back to the spruiking point, there are, nobody can tell you how this is going to turn out, right? There are too many variables. There are too many countervailing factors. So anybody who says future's gold or the future's crypto or whatever it is, right? Nobody knows, right? So the level of uncertainty that we have is probably as high as it's ever been. And that suggests to me that there needs to be a little bit of conservatism in terms of an investment strategy. As I say, spreading the risks. And also, I guess you've got to ask the question, are you thinking of investing to protect the assets you've got or to try and trade in or create growth, right? Because, you know, there are people who've done quite well with Bitcoin over the last three months. If you bought it then and sold it recently, then you've probably done quite well. The question is, is that repeatable? And, you know, that's another question. So there's a bunch of really big investment questions. It's really complicated. And what I say to people is anybody who thinks that there is a simple formulation and a simple answer to this are just deceiving you. There isn't. Or, or they're just missing a lot of it, right? And they're just not thinking through a lot of these things, which sometimes <laughs> yep. is the case. Yep. Yeah, I think that, that that's very sound advice. And yeah, it's pretty scary out there. I'd like to pivot perhaps a bit and talk a bit about Australian investors and the way that they approach investing and the mindset and yep. diversification and things yep. like that and how that might be different than like the average American investor. Well, let me start by telling you that we are probably some of the largest, most sporty gamblers in the world, right? We, we have a large number of what we call pokey machines here. You know, those things where you go into the, and you pull the lever and you see whether you get three lemons or whatever, right? It's amazing how much money is spent on those and on the horses. So really? Australians are, are gamblers by nature. Now, yeah. perhaps you could argue that this is a consequences of the, you know, being shipped out from around the world, you know, criminals and all of those. Things. I don't know. I don't know. But so, so there is a very strong gambling, wagering, sort of thing here in Australia. And so people quite often will take short-term decisions on the hope of making a profit, right? And that has been quite surprising to me because that's not, I'm not wired like that at all. I was brought up in the UK. My father was a bank manager. I've always tended to go be rational, but go through it and really think it through, right? So I just watch some of this stuff and think you've got to be kidding, you know, but so that's the first point. Second point is property. Property, property, property is the number one asset class in Australia for most people. They believe that that's where they make the biggest returns. I've mentioned the doubles in seven years, even if the data doesn't support that. So a lot of people will go into property first. A lot of people will also go into the stocks, not necessarily local stocks, some international stocks as well, because of the con relationship between that and the US dollar and those sorts of things. But we're also seeing now an interest in gold. So we have some gold miners in Australia and people are buying quite heavily into the gold miners as well as the gold price. And recently crypto has become really quite big here. We have a lot of people, even a lot of um, boomers now buying crypto, Bitcoin mainly, but not only Bitcoin. And, and so we're starting to see that, that come in as well. So what I'd say is there's a lot of confusion amongst investors. There were a lot of people banking a lot 
on particular asset classes, assuming that that's the right way to go. Like diversification isn't necessarily something which is easy to convince people to do at the moment. And the other point to make is there we have a superannuation system here, which is a forced superannuation system. We are forced to save for our old age, right? Now that money is a separate pot. If you're working a certain percentage is taken out every month and goes into your super. So a lot of people have superannuation. That superannuation is then invested by large superannuation funds into all sorts of things. So as well as the local investors, you've got these institutional investors and the superannuation investors. So the thing that people don't get is you're often competing as an individual investor with the superannuation funds who have huge reach, huge capability and capacity, but also a 10 to net average around the index. So it's quite difficult sometimes to be able to get a return that's better than the index as a result of that because of the relative concentration of the superannuation funds. So that's sort of in a nutshell, the way, the way it goes. We have close to 3 trillion in superannuation. That's 3 trillion Aussies. And it's interesting that one of the initiatives going right back to the virus, they allowed people to draw out $10,000 from their superannuation last year and this year. And 39, 40 um, billion of super was pulled out. So a lot of people decided to pull the money out and just use it rather than actually save for, for retirement because they could, right? Well, maybe that's the speculative um, nature of the, the investment, right? I mean, if you have the superannuation, this thing that's going to take care of you in your old age, it's like the, the money that you're investing today is more of play money. And then it has these bigger instant gratification and social media as everybody's making millions of dollars. Well, actually, things. a lot of people use that, lose that money from superannuation to go and put a deposit on a house. Well, I mean, so. real estate prices only go up. It's a, it's a sure bet, right? But are the superannuation well, funds investing in uh, Australian real estate as well? I mean, it, it almost yes, sounds like they would have that's to. That's feasible. That, yeah. That's feasible. Yep, absolutely. And some, some do. And some have a lot of their superannuation in, in, in property and super funds. Um, super funds are basically separate you know, legal entities. So they're actually um, managed differently. And there's also a thing called a self-managed super fund, which is basically where you manage it yourself. Gotcha. So that's basically you you basically have your own portfolio that's separate from your personal wealth. And so that's been growing quite fast as well. Although a lot of people are actually, if you look at the returns over a medium term, they tend to perform less well than many other funds. But there's also worth saying that some of the big, what's called retail funds, the ones run by the big banks, underperform dramatically because they have high fees and they tend to trace the index or below. So it, it's a really complex Environment. And it's interesting that the level of knowledge and experience and understanding and education in Australian, uh, in an Australian context and for Australians is very low. So there are a lot of people who really think they're experts in investment and they're not, they're traders. Nice. Well, people like you doing fighting the good fight, helping people understand this, this important <laughs> asset class and, and, and some other aspects, right, that are, that are coming into play. But uh, yeah. Holes and yeah. houses. I, I won't forget that one. That's that's a really easy way to remember the Australian economy. That's what, that's what Australia is, houses and holes. <laughs> this is going to be the new mental model, the lens at which I look through <laughs> that part of the world, unfortunately, or fortunately. And, and, and if you added if you added poisonous well, yeah, snakes things that are trying to kill you as well, <laughs> then you pretty much nailed Australia. Yeah, well, that March trip, that was going to be my first trip. I was actually really excited, had a whole thing, but, mm. you know, the virus had other plans and 
now I'm back in the U.S., so the other side of the world. But Martin, I've, I've really enjoyed this conversation and a quite philosophical discussion on where the world could go. It's, it's certainly not an easy answer There's, and it's pretty unknowable at this time, but I, I enjoy talking about the, the factors at play and it kind of lets your mind wander on where potentially we could go. I really, really enjoyed the conversation. Wanted to just give it over to you. Where do you want my listeners to find out a little bit more about you and what you're doing? Well, thank you for that. And uh, I enjoyed it too. And look, uh, you know, you're always going to get philosophical stuff from me because I keep asking the, the next question, the next question. And some people find that really uncomfortable. Philosophy is uncomfortable, but actually from that uncomfortable journey can come more lasting and deeper truth. And in the current environment, I think that's what we need. Now, if you want to get more about what I do, my main channel on YouTube is called Walk the World. And uh, I post daily there and discuss a lot of these things so that we have philosophical discussions we have data-driven discussions i also have a blog at digitalfinanceanalytics.com and i post a lot there and i'm also on um, twitter as well at dfa analyst awesome and i'll link all of those really appreciate it martin really really had it enjoyed enjoyed this well i enjoyed it too and keep safe and uh, keep watching the skies huh thanks you too there you have it. Thank you for listening. I really appreciate your support. Show notes, transcript, links, and more can be found on our website at altassetallocation.com. If you'd be so kind, please share this with anyone you think might be interested or get some value from this conversation. If you have any questions or comments, please reach out. I'm always happy to hear them. Lastly, if you're on YouTube, please like the video or subscribe to the channel. If you're listening to the audio version of this, please subscribe to the podcast and or leave a review. This really helps more people find the podcast and I really appreciate it. Thanks again and hope you have a fantastic day. Happy investing.